And to the angel, it'll come up on the screen if you wouldn't mind, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you were rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have affliction. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word spoken uh, to the local church. Lord, we thank you for how present you are to your people, that truly you walk amongst us and you know intimately the things that we face and walk through. So Lord, I pray that what might happen amongst us is that we would have unveiled eyes to see you at work in the world around us that we would know your nearness, we would know your presence here today, and uh, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Feel free to have a seat. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. These are words from Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, it's from a, a portion of the Sermon on the Mount that we've come to know as the Beatitudes. And in this space, Jesus is flipping right side up our understanding of how the world works. And in this space, he's speaking these words of blessing that, that, that the kingdom of heaven is near, that God is near, and that there are gifts to those that we might see as, as those that are on the, on the margins of society or those that have had incredibly difficult and challenging circumstances in life. Jesus gives other statements of blessing in the Sermon on the Mount. For those who mourn, he says that they'll receive comfort. For, for those that are merciful, they themselves will receive mercy. For those that are peacemakers, they will be called children of God. But I find it absolutely intriguing that when Jesus speaks to these three, those that are poor, those that are persecuted, and those that have slander thrown at them, he says, yours is heaven. Yours is heaven. Your reward is great in heaven. And when you fast forward here to the book of Revelation and you read what Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, he's identifying three things that they are going to be walking through. You're, you're afflicted. You're poor. And you're facing slander. And in those, to, those, to the church in those three circumstances, his promise to them is just like the Sermon on the Mount. Heaven. Heaven is yours. That this is a word from the one that was dead and is now alive. And if you endure, you will receive the crown of life and you will not be touched by the second death. What we understand here is that Jesus is saying heaven is yours. The kingdom of heaven is at yours. See, this letter, this letter isn't written from, from someone who hasn't walked through what we've walked through and what we walk through. Jesus knows their poverty. Jesus knows the persecution that they're facing, and Jesus knows the slander thrown at them, and he says, I'm, I'm yours. Because what we understand when we talk about heaven is that, that heaven, it isn't, heaven isn't merely this place that we go to when we die, but we understand that the movement of heaven is that heaven is making its way toward earth. 
And heaven is this understanding that, that, that the kingdom of God, his very real reign and his very real presence will come to earth and dwell here with us. And so Jesus is right here in the midst of the church and saying, listen, I, I am the reward. I am your life. Jesus knows. Jesus knows what we face. Jesus knows what we God have gone through. I, I love the fact that when Jesus starts here into the church in Smyrna, he, he, he identifies himself as the one who was dead and who's now alive. The one who is the first and is also the last. Jesus speaks to a church facing death and he reveals himself with the language and reality of his resurrection. To those afflicted, this is the one that has been beaten. To those in poverty, these are the words from the one who was stripped bare. To those facing slander, this is the one that was mocked and put had a crown of thorns placed upon his head. This, these words to the church in Smyrna, who are a community that are in great persecution and suffering, Jesus speaks to them, and he identifies with them. I know what you're facing. I know what you're walking through. These are the, one, these are the words of the one who has tasted death. And this is the one who's come back to life. Jesus knows intimately our places of pain and suffering. Let me talk to you a little bit about Smyrna. Smyrna, um, well, we identified last week when we talked about why the, the churches are listed in, in the order that they're listed, is that John, who writes these let, uh, the book of Revelation, is on an island called Patmos. And if you were to move counter... Uh, clockwise geo, uh, geographically, you would move in the order that the, that the letters are written. So it, a, a way to look at it is the, this is the next city that the postman would go to um, if he were to be delivering this letter. And so, the first, so if you go from Patmos and you move counterclockwise, the very next city is Ephesus, and the city after that is Smyrna, and then and on and on and goes, and it makes that, that loop there. Smyrna... Um, a little history about them is Smyrna was famous for their emperor worship. They were famous for a city that loved or had temples erected to, to empire, to Rome. In 195 BC, uh, a temple to Dea Roma, Rome personified as a goddess, was erected in Smyrna. And in A.D. 25, of all the cities that were in this region, and they were all hoping to get the honor of this, it was Smyrna that was selected as being able to erect a temple in honor of the emperor Tiberius, a place where people would come and gather to worship the emperor of Rome. So um, Smyrna, again, was a place of, of deep empire worship. And, God, and, and, and so Jesus writes to this church because likely what's taking place is that Smyrna is facing very real persecution and poverty and slander because they, they uh, confess affection and allegiance to Jesus and not, um, and not allegiance to Rome. And if you can imagine that if this city is known for its empire worship, if this is a city that has the honor of being able to raise up temples of worship for the emperors, and that that's likely where the marketplace scene is happening, that now if you're a new community of people that are saying, we're not going along with this worship of empire, that you're likely going to face poverty. Because pe the people in the marketplace aren't sure how to interact with you. 
And that isn't just out of like, oh, we don't like you, but because if you are in a space where you're bringing gifts to this temple, you are expecting that your provision is going to come because of your worship at that temple. So now this community of people, this small segment of people called Christians, they're disrupting the system. They're putting, from, from Rome's perspective, from the citizens of Smyrna's perspective, you're putting us in harm's way. The reason that we're prospering, the reason that things go well for us, the reason that we have favor in the world, and the reason that we're dominant and great is because of our worship of Rome and the empire. So you're going to be a little hesitant about interacting about selling goods and buying goods from this new community of people. You're probably thinking, like, if I interact with, with this Paul guy, are the gods going to be upset with me? Is our economy going to crash? It, it, what does that mean for, for our military strength? What does that mean for how the gods fight on our behalf? What does that mean for, for, for the fact that they're saying, no, they're not going to go in and, and engage with the temple prostitution that's taking place? But that's where our blessing comes from, right? So all that's taking place, and so you imagine that it's very real that they're facing poverty, that they're facing persecution, and they're facing all kinds of slander. And, and so, it, so God writes to these people that are in a very real place of tension of saying, how do we remain faithful in the world around us? This was a church that was likely seen as dissidents, as, as, as disrupting the system. In his book on the book of Revelation, Scott McKnight recounts the story of the poet Malcolm Geit. Malcolm Geit was one day, he was, he was at a speaking event, and he was um, going to make photocopies of his poem. And as he was there, he said there was no one in the office, so he just started making photocopies of his own poem. And he says, but this was such a complicated machine, I had no idea how to use it. So I just began pressing buttons of this, of this copy. We've all been there before. He, he's pressing copies, or just buttons on all of this copy machine. And he said that he just messed up this photocopier in special kinds of ways. That this, this photocopier was just was jammed and it was broken. And as he was there, a lady that, was, that worked in the office finally came out and she opened it up and she said, your poem is jamming my machine. And he goes, but she also uncrumpled the poem and read it just the same. And he, he heard that statement from her, your poem is jamming my machine. And like a good poet, he wrote a poem about that scene that took place. This is the poem. My poetry is jamming your machine. It broke the photocopier, I'm to blame, with pictures copied from a world unseen. My poem is in the works, I'm on the scene. We free my verse and I confess my shame. My poetry is jamming your machine. Though you berate me with what might have been, you stop to read the poem just the same and pictures copied from a world unseen. Subvert the icons on your mental screen and open windows with a whispered name. My poetry is jamming your machine. For chosen words can change the things they mean and set the once familiar world aflame with pictures copied from a world unseen. The mental props give way on which you lean. The world which you see will never be the same. My poetry is jamming your machine with pictures copied from a world unseen. Michael Guy writes this poem that I really believe connects with the church of Smyrna in that the church is, is living with images from a world unseen. There's been an unveiling that's happened in their hearts. That what they've realized is Jesus is King of Kings. That Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. 
And that is the way that they are faithfully living in the world around them. And what is happening in Smyrna? It's copying the, it's breaking the photocopy machine. It's breaking the status quo. It's disrupting the way that the world is operating. And it's Smyrna with great acts of love and generosity is, is, is like causing a dysfunction in the city in which they abide. You don't live like us. You live different. It's been said and it's been observed by the church, the first century church, that, that they not only took care of their own poor, but they took care of the world's poor as well. And what was just, what was just so evident about the, 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 the movement of the church in the first century is that they were completely reshuffling how the world was perceived and how things worked. They acted with great generosity. They acted with great love. And here in an empire that was known for its emperor worship, for, for its greatness, for its superiority, for its military strength, here now you have arrive a community that's saying, it is about suffering, and it is about service, and it is about love, and it is about generosity, and it is about this dead criminal placed on a cross that raised from the grave that we worship and follow the way of. And it jammed the machine of Smyrna. Jesus comes to them and says, I know your persecution. I know that you're living differently. And I see that, and I see that it causes tension in your life. Live differently in the world. Be a different testimony in the world. Live different than, than the people in your workplace live. Have a different ethic and a morality about you that follows the way of Jesus. And watch the, the friction and the tension that will begin to take place. For, for some in this room, you were, the, you were the first person in your family that began to follow Jesus, and it changed how you arrived in your family systems. And because of the way you live, because of who you are, it can create points of friction. It can cause people to talk behind your back and talk to you to your face because you live different. And Jesus speaks to a church and says, I know your affliction. I know your poverty. I know that it's cost you. And I know the slander. I know, I hear personally the words that have been spoken against you. And church, it just doesn't have to be in the place of, of persecution or friction because of our faithfulness in Jesus, but honestly, a common story for the body of Christ is that suffering is a normal experience. So whatever places of suffering exist in our life, whatever places of affliction and, and whatever places of tension that we might exist, what we recognize is that he who is the first and is the last comes to us and says, I know, I know, I know what you walk through. Jesus knows what's ahead. What is ahead for this church is more affliction. What's ahead for this church is more pain. What's ahead for this church is a season in which they are going to continue to face this difficulty in, in, in the season or in the city that they, that they live in. What is ahead for this church, Jesus tells them, beware, beware. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have affliction. A quick tangent, what's up with this 10 days comment? I think that, especially here on the forefront or the, the beginning of the book of Revelation, this gives us a little bit of insight on how to read the book of Revelation. Is because is it likely that, that the Church of Smyrna is only going to face 10 literal days of persecution? Likely not. <laughs> Likely not. What Jesus is, is very likely doing here is he's using this 10 days, which would have been seen as this, this way to say that there's going to be this complete season. 
there's going to be this confined season of persecution that you're going to walk through. For 10 days, you're going to face this. But while Jesus says, this is what's ahead for you, because you just live in the reality of a broken and fallen world, this is what is ahead of you, there's going to be an end to the 10 days. And what we recognize here from the words of Jesus is, is, I will arrive in your places of affliction. This is the God who comes through. This is the God who shows up. This is the God who sees us in our places of affliction and in the places in which we have received slander, in our places of lack, in our places of want. And he says, I will show up. I will say, you've gone this far and that's enough. And he puts an end to the suffering of the world. This is the God who shows up on behalf of his people. And you imagine how meaningful the rest of the book of Revelation will be for the church of Smyrna. And while for us, from our vantage point, maybe we read through the book of Revelation and we hear described this great beast and this great dragon and we read of all of these things that are taking place in the world uh, and you're trying to figure out what, what's taking place and you're trying to understand and decipher all of the, the crazy imagery that's happening. But can you imagine for a persecuted church like Smyrna reading through these words and understanding that that great dragon and that great beast will not have the final word because what was spoken to them is that these are the words from him who is the first and the last. These are the words who was dead and has now, has now come back to life. What Jesus is communicating to this church and throughout the entire book of Revelation is evil will not have the final word. Ten days, and then I say that's enough. Ten days, and the lamb shows up. That's what's being communicated to the church in Smyrna, and that's what's being communicated through in the entire book of Revelation. This great beast that, that rages around us, empire that seems like it's having the final say on it. Nope. You know who has the final word? The first and the last has the final word. The one that's the alpha and the omega. The one that has tasted death and has now come to life. Whatever the world might be able to throw at you, Jesus is greater. Jesus gets the last word. Jesus gets the last word. Smyrna, affliction is ahead. Darkness will seek to snuff you out. Satan will throw all of his strength at you. Opposition will be yours. But you will receive the crown of life. Death and suffering do not prevail. The Lamb prevails. The Lamb prevails. And Jesus speaks to the church, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now listen, that may come across maybe even a little insensitive to us. Hey guys, guess what? The devil is about to tempt you for 10 days. Don't be afraid. But these words, I don't think, are this insensitive, like there shouldn't be any kind of fear whatsoever in your heart. And if at any point you have anxiousness or you have doubt or you have fear, then that means your faith is illegitimate. No, I don't think that that's what's being communicated here by Jesus. I think what's being communicated here is what's the posture, the ongoing posture of your living. Don't have a life that is defined by fear, but see the one who is the first and the last, and bring to him your places of legitimate anxiousness and stress and worry and doubt and, and, and fear. Bring to him those places that, that rage within you that you cannot control within yourself. Don't live in a place of fear but have unveiled eyes to see that Jesus is greater and move to a place in trust to him. Church, the letters that I hold in my hand are the testimony from a church 
And the testimony here tells of a radical and sometimes bewildering story. Because what fills these pages are people that have walked through times of suffering, but regularly confess experiences of great joy. And it's bewildering to us because we look at that and say, how does a community walk through such great affliction, but regularly express just these descriptions of unrivaled peace and joy? Let me, let me bring you through a, a, a collection of, of, of words from a variety of people throughout the New Testament. A man, a man named Luke writes this in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, when he describes the church being persecuted. They were just being persecuted, and he says, and as they left the council, if you can have it come up on the screen, as they left the council, they, the church, rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. A man named Paul writes to a church in Colossae, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, he says this, he says, may you be strong with all strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, there's debate all over that, all over that one. Uh, but the author of Hebrews writes this in chapter 10, verse 34. He says, For you had compassion for those who were in prison, and you cheerfully accepted the plundering of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves possessed something better and more lasting. James to the church in James chapter 1, verse 2 says this, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. And Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 13, he says this, but rejoice, but rejoice insofar as you are sharing Christ's suffering, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. And let's not forget the words of Jesus that we read at the front end of this sermon. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. It's a bewildering story, but a story that a lot of us have become familiar with. The church knows suffering well. But as the church has navigated the story of suffering, the church has regularly had this testimony of joy while she has navigated suffering. How do we get there? How do we get there? So that in the face of our own suffering, our hearts might be able to experience a place of gladness, delight, joy. How, how do we get to this place like the church has regularly given us testimony of? That, that when we face persecution, or when we face trial, when we face poverty, that when we face slander, that we might experience a deep well of joy happening inside of our being. How do we get there? I don't think it's coincidence that the church who also wrote about suffering regularly encouraged the body of believers to rejoice at all times. Do you ever, maybe you have even in your own home, you ever witnessed an old dog finding their place of rest in their home? You ever noticed an old, a dog in, in your home and they have their one place that they constantly turn to? Maybe even right now you can picture your own dog walking down the hallway 
into to whether it's probably in front of a fireplace, it's probably in front of a heater vent, it's probably maybe next to their kid, uh, to the kid's bedroom or wherever it may be. But right now, you can picture in your mind that old dog with that worn out path in your home. Maybe right now, you can picture in your house that worn out section of carpet. Maybe right now, you can, you can picture right exactly where, where the fur gathers together. That old and wise dog has a worn pathway in their life. They know where to find rest. They know where rest is in the home. And church, what, we, what, 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 what Paul and others write to us when they communicate to us, rejoice always to constantly move to places of celebration and joy and delight, what we are developing in our own lives are these worn pathways of rest. What we are developing in those moments of our lives when we learn throughout the mundane moments of Monday is that we are learning what it is to have a fast track to joy. So that when suffering comes, your heart is already trained in the way of joy. Your heart is already trained in the way of delight. You know what it is to experience and taste the goodness of God. You've developed an appetite for him. You've developed an understanding of his presence. You've grown aware of his nearness. So when the pressure comes, what comes flowing out of you is joy. Because you're in proximity to Jesus. When Jesus writes to the churches here in the book of Revelation, what he makes sure to identify to them. Listen, here's, John sees a picture of Jesus and the very first very first descriptor that we get of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 is that here he is, he is the one that is standing among the lampstands. What were the lampstands? They were the churches. The very first picture you get of Jesus is, is of him just dwelling near the churches. He is intimately aware of us. He is so close to us. But what we would what we develop in having these these actions and these habits of gratitude, it is it unveils our eyes so that we might see the presence of Jesus around us at all points in our life. That we would have eyes to see him here. Church, it's no wonder. It's no wonder in Acts chapter 2, the church is described as this, having this regular habit of gathering together and sharing meals with one another. Acts chapter 2, you can read it at the, the end of the chapter, around, ver, around verse 42. You will see that the church gathered together, they broke bread together, they shared meals with one another, and then Luke, when he describes what happens amongst them, he says that there was, they, they had glad and generous hearts. This was a community that knew relational joy. And as they knew what it was to have relational joy, their hearts were transformed. They had glad and generous hearts. Think of that foundationally then when you go to Acts chapter 4. And in Acts chapter 4, they are beaten and they are persecuted and they are slandered for the name of Jesus. And do you know what that church does? They gather together and they rejoice. Why? That's their learned pathway. That's what God formed amongst them. They knew what it was to return to joy. Because that's, what, that's, that's, what, that's what's been shaped amongst them. They shared meals together. They were around each other. They knew what it was to work through difficult spaces of, of relational tension. And they found rejoicing with one another. So much of joy is this relational health with us and God and with, uh, and with us and, and, and each other, right? That, 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 that that's the space in which joy is found. 
Don't be afraid. Jesus says to the church on the precipice of persecution. It's not that we're never afraid. It's not that we never have fear. It's that we know the one who is love. And we know his working through our lives. So when we go through times of persecution, fear, terror, poverty, our hearts have already been trained to turn to the one who is love. Jim Wilder says this. The quote will come up on the screen. Joy is not a recipe for avoiding pain. Joy is what enables us to suffer well. Joy assures us that we are never alone in our pain and that those who share our suffering will show us how to remember who we are when things get hard. Jim Wilder also gives us some practices for joy that I just thought would be, would be worthwhile for closing out our time uh, together. I'm going to read through his practices for joy, how to develop these habits, these pathways of joy. One is practice appreciation. Throughout your day, practice appreciation. The, the goal, the, the big goal that you might be able to, to pursue is that if you can have 15 minutes in your day of practicing joy, Listen, it'll literally rewire your brain. And, and just think about, like, can I do, again, it's the big goal of getting there. But if you can have three times of five minutes in your day, how, many time, how much time do you spend at a red light? How, many time, how much time do you spend, how much time do you spend in the pickup line for your kiddos? How, how much time do you maybe just, sit around before work starts. I, I'm a slow starter when it comes to work. I, really, I have like an onboarding process every single morning where it's like, I'm going to check Twitter and I'm going to check Instagram and I'm, I'm going to send a bunch of text messages. I'm going to listen to a song. I got to check the Dodgers score. Like, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, okay, now I can start working, right? And it's just like, I don't, know, I don't know other slow onboarders when it comes to the work morning. Like you have, like just when you ease into your day, can you add in two minutes tomorrow? Let me just move to a place of appreciation. And that just simply is recognize something good in the world around you. The women just did this, what, a couple of Saturdays ago, where you just recognize there are good things happening in the world around us. Let us be aware of the goodness that's taking place in the world around us. Stop and maybe open up your, your, your phone and look for an old picture. Like, remember when your kids were babies, moms, right? Like, like just stop and look at, like, let your heart move to joy. But, but listen, there's a little caveat to this practice of appreciation. Don't do it when your heart is in an agitated space. <laughs> Develop it first. Because what will end up happening is that you will sabotage that movement of going to appreciation when you're just in a, like, ticked off moment. It's like, oh, I've got to be glad right now. Right now, what's going to happen is there's, there's going to, it's going to be a difficult space. But first, try to just, when you're in a good and calm space, move to appreciation. Rejoice always. Get your thoughts in sync, in sync with God's thoughts. And what that might simply look like is that is, is tomorrow or today you just start journaling and you start writing out, God, this is how I'm viewing things. How are you viewing things? This is how I'm viewing the world. This is the narrative that I'm telling myself about this relationship. What do you have to say about it? That we would, and this is just practices of hope, right? It's practices of saying, God, this is how I'm viewing things. This is what I'm dealing with. This is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm walking through. These, these are, if you ever, anyone watched This Is Us? Lewis and I would watch that show. We love that show. And the um, Beth and Randall? right, was the name of the couple. They would always have this, like, um, worst-case scenario game that they would play with each other, and they're just like, okay, worst-case scenario, what is it? And it's just like, our kids are going to leave us, they're going to go and get, like, just addicted to drugs and all things, and they're going to sell all of our possessions, and there's like, they go, okay, that was really dark, that was really deep, right? But you just be able to bring to God the worst-case scenario that's happening in your mind. 
bring to him. Actually explore those places of anxiousness and fear. Don't shove it down deeper into your heart, which is the processing center of your life, and pretend like it's not going to impact you. But actually bring it out, bring it to the light, and say, God, help me to be in sync with how you view the world. Walk me through how how you're seeing things. Recognize what drains your joy. And don't do it on the Sabbath, right? Like, recognize what drains your joy. Actually, be, be aware of what costs you mental and physical and emotional energy. Be aware of those things, and then recognize that you're going to need times of refueling if you're doing that. You have big projects at work. You just recognize, right? You stop and you evaluate. Hey, in this next month ahead, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to be called for for me to walk through and to do, and it's costing me joy. So that means I need to be aware of that, what's draining me today, what's draining, what's likely to drain me tomorrow, and I'm going to find times to turn to joy. What's draining me? What's draining you currently? Is it a physical ailment? Is it a relational issue? Is it, is it a workload thing? Is it an unresolved problem? Is it a recent loss? Don't ignore those things, but stop and to say, God, how do I refuel? How do I refresh? How do I find rest in your presence because of these things that I know in this season of life are costing me my joy? Because a lot of times what we don't, a lot of us don't have the option for is just be able to say, I don't have to deal with that anymore. Right? We, it'd be nice just to be able to say, like, what well, was Marie Kondo? And you're just like, I'm not going to deal with it anymore. I'm going to throw it out. But the reality is a lot of us just don't have that option. Your six-year-old throwing a temper tantrum, you just can't go out of the car with you, right? Like, that's not a possibility. So it's like, okay, okay, 3 p.m. on Thursdays. I know that's a place of tension in my house. I know that's going to cost me joy. What am I going to do on Thursday night to refuel? What am I going to do to re-engage with the goodness of Jesus? So that then you're going to see it have a positive impact where all of a sudden now you arrive in those spaces maybe even a little bit different and a little bit better and a little bit more healthy. But you constantly just recognize that you're going to recognize what's draining your joy. But avoid joy substitutes a.k.a. addictions. What we've got to be honest with is that there are these natural paths of comfort that we've developed in our lives. There, There are these things that we've already looked to that have allowed us to cope with whatever we're going through in life. And by the way, if you're dealing with a family member or a loved one or counseling someone that's dealing with addictions, they've just likely found a different coping, coping mechanism than, than you have found. We all have coping mechanisms. We all have these things that we turn to when life is, is, is stretched us too far. And so maybe for some of us, it's like Twitter's a coping mechanism. And, and, and Netflix is a coping mechanism, and, and alcohol, a good modello, is a coping mechanism, and, and you just go through that list of things that we've turned to, and Pornhub has become a coping mechanism, and, and you look through the list of, for, for, that all of us have found these coping mechanisms, because our hearts are looking for rest. Our hearts are looking for joy. Our hearts are looking to just go, what do I do in these places of suffering? Because I don't have the power to get through this by myself. I am facing trial. I'm facing trouble. I'm facing relational ill health. And I don't know what to do with that. So I need to find something that's going to help me in these spaces. And we turn to these joy substitutes. And some of those listed aren't bad for us to have engaged in our life, right? It's fine that there's sometimes I find great wisdom in reading from pastors and authors on Twitter, and I, and I engage with what they say, and sometimes it's really healthy for me, but there are other times where I just realize I'm stretched out right now, and I'm just looking for something to help me cope with the day. 
And in those spaces, what I need to do is try to find myself in the, in the proximity of Jesus and saying, help me deal with this place of trial, of persecution, of terror, of anxiousness, of doubt, or whatever it is that I'm going through, and help me to find joy in you that it, who is good, who is the first and the last, who will not run out, who will not leave me disappointed. How do I learn to turn to you? This is the letter from him who is the first and the last. The one who was dead and who's now alive. He's the one. He is the one that is an unending source of joy and delight. He is the one that will not run dry. He, he is the one that we learn to turn to because he will not leave us disappointed. And so we learn what it is to visit that, 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 that well that the church has, has learned to visit. It's, it's him. He is, he is living water. He is the bread of life. He is where joy resides. Church, don't be afraid. Learn what it is to trust in Jesus. Learn what it is to turn to him in every space of your life. Brittany, we didn't talk about this, but would you mind coming back up? And I'll pray, and let's, let's go back in, into singing um, that last song. Um, I forget the what the name of the title of the song but church would you stand with me let's pray Jesus, thank you that there is a constant invitation to, to return to you. And, and what we recognize is, is that sometimes that word repentance or calling a people to repent can come across in a way that, that fills us with shame and condemnation. But Lord, would we in this space again see repentance as this invitation back to relationship. Lord, we confess that there are other things that we have pursued as our central and, and, and defining places of joy and rest and delight and comfort. And you who are good and have our goodness in mind we recognize that in this space, call us back to yourself. Return us to you who is our joy, our comfort, our peace. You, the ancient of days, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, who does not run dry, who does not, who doesn't run out. May we see our strength renewed in you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room and those that are watching online, for those that may be even listening on a future date, would they know the nearness of your presence right now? Would they know your comfort? For anyone in this space, for anyone hearing my voice, Lord, I pray that what they might even hear in, in that space that might be even a just point of, of real shame that rises up in their hearts right now, Lord, that you would come and that you would speak to them and just let them know about your grace and your goodness calling them back to yourself. That you don't just point things out within us to seek to condemn us, but Lord, you, you cause stuff to arise in us in a healthy way so that we might know what it is to return to you who is life 
Would you do that work amongst us? For those that are overwhelmed, for those that are discouraged, for those that have faced injustice, for those that are just in a place of relational tension, Jesus, would they lean into you right now? Would they know the God who has been slandered? Would they know the God who has been persecuted? Would they know the God who has been stripped bare and beaten, but now raises, has been raised to life? Dwell with us, Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's sing this together, church. Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to us, to those he has called his holy people, who are his rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms church would be blessed and encouraged and strengthened by the Lord today. Again, happy Mother's Day to, to the mamas in the house. I'm thankful uh, for you spending the, your day uh, here with us this morning. If anyone would like someone to pray um, with them, um, remember, I mean, just having people partnering with us in our spaces of need and, and vulnerability and just um, and want, um, we'll have some men and women that will be up here. I know that they'd love to spend some time just praying with you, journeying with you in those, those spaces. Join us downstairs in the courtyard. Love some time to spend with you as we just get to hang out uh, with each other with some bagels and coffee and some water and, and hear the voice of our kids running around uh, the courtyard as well. And hopefully we get to see you tomorrow night at that worship night. Love you, church. We'll see you downstairs.